All right, reading response this morning will be from Romans chapter 7, verse 24 through chapter 8, verse 2. So, as always, I'll read the, the first half and then we'll collectively read the second half together. So, verse 24 says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of your Son Jesus and breaking the bondages of sin for His people, for your people. Father, I pray this morning that your word be exhorted and that we receive it uh, for what it is, as we read your scriptures, as Cody exhorts the truth, that we receive it as your truth, the, the word of God. Father, tune our hearts, prepare us to, to receive that word, and that we be uh, doers of the word, not just hearers. That you sanctify your people this morning. If there's anyone here that, that not be regenerated, that your, your spirit be upon them. That your spirit changes their heart, softens their heart to receive the word. And may they rejoice. May we all rejoice in, in the promises of your son. That great inheritance that awaits, that has been purchased by our kinsman redeemer. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 8. That's where we'll be at this morning. John chapter 8. Four weeks ago, we looked at Leviticus 25, and in Leviticus 25, as we spoke about the role of a kinsman redeemer, we, we discussed that a kinsman redeemer is a relative who restores or preserves the full community rights of a disadvantaged family member. The, ne this, the next week, we saw how Christ came from a, a lineage that, that was brought forth by a kinsman redeemer specifically Boaz. After that, we got to read about Christ being our kinsman by his partaking of our flesh and blood, bringing us to last week, where we spoke of Christ being a kinsman redeemer by redeeming a poor man's land. We, of course, being the poor brother. This week, having established already that Christ is our kinsman, we seek to establish the fact that the kinsman redeemer redeems the slave. The kinsman redeemer redeems the slave. In Leviticus 25, we read that if a brother became so poor and, and, and needed somebody else to redeem him, if a brother was so poor that he sold himself into slavery, then a kinsman redeemer would rise up and buy him back out of that slavery. It was the role of a kinsman redeemer to take his brother who had sold himself into slavery and bring him back to the tribe of which he belonged. Now, this is, this is great, and it would work well in the covenant community, but before long, Israel began to face a lot bigger of a problem. They not only struggled with just one brother being in slavery, but the entire nation went into slavery to Babylon. And in order for a brother to redeem a brother, at least one of the brothers has to be free. So now you need a lot better of a redeemer than one who is simply richer than you and has not sold himself into slavery. 
Now, the Jewish nation spent around 70 years in slavery to Babylon, and then, as is recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah, under the prophetic ministry of Zechariah and Haggai, they brought, were brought back out of Babylon to their homeland and began to rebuild their temple. This didn't last long. They were struggling to rebuild their city. And eventually, again, they fell back into slavery. Now, during this time, after they began to rebuild, after being exiled to Babylon, there was a man that rose up 168 years before Christ named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He sought to severely oppress the Jews. The first Maccabees says that this is what he did. He went up against Israel in Jerusalem with a great multitude and entered proudly into the sanctuary, took away the golden altar, the candlestick of light, and all the vessels thereof. He took the table of the showbread and the pouring vessels, the vials, the censers of gold, the veil, the crown, the golden ornaments that were before the temple, all which he pulled off. He took the silver, the gold, the precious vessels. He took the hidden treasures. And when he had taken everything away, he went into his own land, having made a great massacre and spoken very proudly. Therefore, there was a great mourning in Israel in every place where they were. So the princes and elders mourned. The virgins and young men were made feeble and the beauty of woman was changed. Every bridegroom took up lamentation, and she that sat in the marriage chamber was in heaviness. The land also was moved for the inhabitants thereof, and all the house of Jacob was covered with confusion. This is the state of Israel 168 years before Christ. And it could seem as though the nation was about to be ended. However, they were not left without hope. A man named Judas Maccabeus (laughs) rose up. And, and, and fought against their adversaries. As the story goes, when, when Judas and, and his few people were surrounded by great enemies, it seemed they had no chance. Judas spoke these words. It is no hard matter for many to be shut up in the hands of few. And with the God of heaven, it is all one. To deliver with a great multitude or a small company, for the victory of battle stands not in the multitude of a host, but strength comes from heaven. They come against us in much pride and iniquity to destroy us and our wives and children and to spoil us, but we fight for our lives and our laws. Wherefore, the Lord himself will overthrow them before our face. And as for you, don't be afraid of them. And so that small company under the army and instruction of Judas fought. They fought for their land which brings us to the end of 2 Maccabees, where it is recorded, from that time forth, the Hebrews had the city, that is Jerusalem, the holy city, in their power. But even this was only temporary. Josephus records that 63 years before Christ, Jerusalem was taken on the third month on the day of the fast. The Jews were once again in slavery. This time under one who would proclaim, sorry, this time under Roman rule, which continued until Christ came to earth. And so the Jews hoped. They hoped for one who would proclaim liberty to the captives. They hoped for a strong warrior who could deliver Jerusalem and Israel from their bondage. Jewish thought looked forward to a Messiah who would deliver them from the oppression of their enemies. And today we see how Christ delivers us from a slavery that is completely different from Jewish thought. We get to see why Lange says about this passage that Christ is the liberator of Israel, the adversary of Satan, the hope of Abraham. Let's read John 
chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, all the way through to verse 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been in bondage to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly gracious Father, we thank you that you have given us a freedom in Christ, that you have sent your Son to be the Savior of the world, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we may experience the freedom of righteousness. Help us, Lord, as we unfold this text today. Help your word to be preached in spirit and in truth, that we may worship in spirit and in truth that we may sing as those who are in freedom, that we may praise you as those who are in freedom, that we may live as those who are in freedom from the bondage of sin. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So my goal as we study through this passage today is twofold. And I believe Christ's teaching and the response of the Jews shows us the two things that I want to address. My duty before you guys and before God is simply to preach the word, to open up and unfold what the scriptures say concerning Christ. So, I seek to preach this text with as much power as the text has. And in doing so then, I pray that that those who have freedom in Christ will be comforted as we see the complete freedom that has been purchased for us at the cross. I also pray that those who are in slavery to sin, if they're being in here, would experience complete unrest until they find the freedom that is in Christ. That the power of this text would overcome them with sin and sorrow until that mighty son sets them free. So we're presented in this text with two groups of people. Those who abide in Christ's word and those who do not. If your life is not given over to Christ, if your life is not given over to his word, then I pray that this text would terrify you. Now, for those of us who are in Christ's word, who abide in the word of Christ, rejoice with me as we read this text. Take heart that our Savior has overcome the world. Let us praise him and rejoice in his salvation as we see the freedom that he has purchased us. And let us, as sons of God, live in complete freedom. Let us never try to yoke ourselves again to the bonds of slavery, but to live in Christ. So there are three points then that I seek to make. I believe what Christ tells us here is that we must abide in his word, and then he explains the results of what happens if we do so. I'm basically going to preach the text backwards. Uh, we're going we're to talk about the freedom we have in Christ and then go back to the exhortation to abide in his word. So point number one then will be freedom from sin. Point number two will be freedom from death. And then point number three, abide. Abide. 
Let us begin then with freedom from sin. Jesus in verse 31 tells the Jews that who had believed in him that abiding in his word brings a truth that sets men free. The Jews had absolutely no concept of what he was talking about. As, as those in bondage to the Romans, they needed a mighty warrior to make Jerusalem a great nation, not truth. Any worldly perspective would simply say this was just bad war tactic. Truth will set us free. We're in bondage. But the Jews, as Lange notes, wanted a freedom from oppression of the enemies. He says, freedom is the very thing the Jews were bent upon all along, but a political, theocratic freedom as pictured by a chiliastic mind, end quote. In other words, the Jews wanted freedom, all right, but they had no concept of the freedom they needed from sin. So the confusion regarding Christ's statement that they express here led the Jews to say in verse 33 what Robertson classifies as a palpable untruth uttered in the heat of controversy. The response to Christ's proclamation of freedom is that they don't need it. We are offspring of Abraham. We've always been free. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Their, their claim to the bloodline of Abraham is, is true enough, but it helps them nothing with their situation before Christ. Regarding their claim to have never been enslaved, it's lacking at best. As we already discussed, the offspring of Abraham for the past many years have always been enslaved. They've been an enslaved nation under the oppression of the enemy. Their covenant condemned them time and time again. But even this fails to get at the heart of what Jesus was saying. Christ's reply in verse 34 speaks of much deeper slavery under a much crueler master. ESV renders this verse really well. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The whole dynamic of the conversation has just taken a deep turn. Those who live in Christ live in freedom. Those who live in disobedience to Christ's word are in slavery. And in verse 35, the slave is cast out. The claim to Abraham's lineage that these Jews just made turned around and absolutely condemned them. You are the offspring of Abraham. You receive the oracles, the laws, the precepts, the teachings, the prophets. God spoke to you through his servants in many times and in many ways. He provided for you with special care and sent many men to warn you of the dangers of disobedience. When you were young and helpless as a people, God took you under his wing and gave you all you could ever need. You grew into a great army and were able to fight for your nation and yourself, yet you still disobeyed. The law that was given to you with great fire and with great glory, a loud voice thundered from the heavens and gave you commandments to walk in them and follow them. You didn't follow. The great God who brought you, bought you, and redeemed you from slavery to your enemies, you abandoned him and sold yourself back into slavery. But not just a physical slavery, you committed abominations and worshipped idols. You sold yourself into sin. 
Yes, you are the offspring of Abraham. And all the blessings you were given will rise up and testify against you on that great day of judgment to condemn you. You know that it's wrong to lie, so why is it that you deceive your neighbor? Why are you so willing to cheat in order to win? You know God has said not to dishonor your father and mother. Why? Argue with them. How is it that you so eagerly disobey when they are not there to correct you? The sin that you live in, you're enslaved to it. And the slave gets cast out of the house. But the Jews didn't understand this. The Jews didn't understand this at all. Their appeal to themselves as Abraham's children was an appeal to the promise of Abraham and to his offspring. A promise of a nation that is greater than all the other nations. One that is living in freedom from any governing authority. Or any other governing authority, more accurately. We're children of promise, they said. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that we need to be set free? Their response to Christ's invitation to be made free was not someone who wants freedom. This was the response of someone who is insulted that Christ would insinuate that they are in bondage. This wasn't just an insult to them. To say they were in slavery was an insult in their mind to their entire lineage. If they're in bondage, then they aren't as great of a nation as they think they are. So they ask, how is it that you say you will become free? And Christ makes an abundantly clear statement. It's not a physical slavery that the unbeliever battles with. This truth has nothing to do with your position in this world. Christ's statement gloriously transcends this world. Every person must deal with the fact that unless they are made alive in Christ, they are in bondage to sin. I'll turn my mic up. Unless they are set free by Christ, they are in bondage to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So if someone is to be set free from the bondage of slavery, what must happen? In Leviticus 25, if a man was sold into slavery, a kinsman redeemer had to rise up. Someone with the means necessary to redeem them from the bondage they had sold themselves into and free them from it. Buy them back. Pay their debt. Here in John 8, the slave is obeying his master and following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. As he is walking about in his chains, unable to free himself from them because his debt is deep. In fact, so deep is this slave's debt that nothing but death can free him from his bonds. The payment for his freedom is that he be crushed for his iniquity. He be pierced for his transgressions. A slave of such sin ought to be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
the Lord ought to put this slave to grief. And so, at the perfect time, our kinsman redeemer arose to pay the debt that we owe. Our kinsman redeemer arrives and is crushed for our iniquities. He is pierced for our transgressions. Upon him is the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. The Lord was pleased to put him to grief. However, what the Bible proclaims is not only that we're set free from the punishment of sin, but that as Christians, we are set free from sin itself. When, when we believed upon Christ, our old self was crucified with Christ. And our slavery, in accordance with the law, was only binding as long as we were alive. When our representative died on our behalf, we died with him. We died with him. And thus are freed from the law and the burden of sin. And in this way, Romans 6, 5-6 through 6 can say, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Dear Christian, your sin cannot condemn you. Your sin cannot condemn you. The greatest adversary that there is will be unable on the day of judgment to stand before God and speak of any of your sins. If you were to die and to stand before God right now and Satan were to rise up and stand beside you and before God he were to say that man has lied and stolen That man is an adulterer and a murderer. He dishonored his parents. There is blood on his hands. God would say, where is it? I see my son's robes. Your father would not see a single one of your sins if you are covered by the blood of Christ. And the greatest adversary cannot change that. Your sin cannot condemn you. Christ will stand there as your mediator. And he will cover you with his robes because he was crushed wearing yours. Your sin cannot condemn you. Therefore, you can live right now in freedom. Sin has no grip on you. You're not in bondage to its passions. You can say with Paul, I delight in the law of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. If you continue now that you're in Christ, to look toward the law, you will never have peace. The law has only ever condemned people. But thanks be to God that we are free from it. The 1689, chapter 21, it says this, The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in, are you ready for this list? 
The liberty Christ has purchased for us consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the severity and curse of the law, their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God, they're yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike and willing mind. Do you understand how extensive the freedom that Christ has purchased for you is? Your access to God is not dependent upon your obedience. Your access to God is not dependent upon your obedience. When you sin, he does not reject you. The times when we struggle to obey Christ's teaching, we don't know need to go to God in fear that he will smite us. Rather, we are enabled by Christ to come as a son comes to a loving father. Penitent and repentant? Yes. But knowing that he will accept us and love us despite our failures. Our confession says this in chapter 19. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. Paul explains it this way in Romans 7. If a married woman were to go and live with another man, she would be called an adulterer. But, Paul says, if her husband dies and she remarries, she would not be called an adulterer. She's free. She's free from that law. And so, he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. I don't, I don't even know that I'm able to like, belabor this point enough because it's so extensive and amazing. This is where your assurance comes from when you struggle with sin. This is, this is where your sure assurance comes from when you are in the depths of pain. The Holy Spirit reassures you that you are Christ and that you are God's not by pointing you to all the things you have obeyed, but by bringing you to your knees in humble repentance and realizing that Christ has finished it all. You're assured of your salvation, not because you're reassured of your obedience, but because you're assured of Christ's finished work on the cross when he sets you free from sin and bondage and slavery. We get to live as free men and women. In Christ... Our disobedience to the law does not exist. We are free to offer up sacrifices of praise to God that are completely untainted. We're free to be able to obey God. We're free to be able to obey God. See, when we were slaves to sin, we were unable to obey we, we could not obey God because we were enslaved to the passions of our flesh and anything we ever sought to offer up to God was tainted and ruined by our sin and the blood that was on our hands. But that's covered. And your everything that you offer up to God is now accepted through the blood of Christ, untainted. You're free from the law that condemned you. 
One more quote from our confession in chapter 21 on Christian liberty. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. So they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. In other words, our freedom from sin is a freedom to obey. Our freedom from sin allows us and brings us into a right standing with God in order that we are freely able to worship our God and love him in righteousness and holiness for all our days that we are redeemed. We can serve the Lord without fear. We are free from sin and thereby enabled not to sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Look at verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. When when we were enslaved to the law, there was absolutely no security. If our righteousness is based on our obedience, then we're insecure and enslaved to the rules. We're not slaves in this manner. We are sons and daughters, and our struggles do not change that status. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That was Romans 8, 14 through 17. This then provides us with an unshakable foundation of assurance. The Son remains forever. We're sons. Remaining forever necessitates that we live forever. So I go to point two. Freedom from death. Freedom from death. The truth of Christ sets us free from the grips of sin and ultimately sets us free from the cords of death. Most agree that verse 35 refers generally to sons. It's not speaking specifically of Christ in verse 35 yet. It's just saying, in all a practical manner, the slave does not remain, the son remains forever. In other words, a slave can be cast out at any time. A son is a son. The, the family relation does not change based on whatever the son does. He remains a son, bloodline. And so, he's a son. Verse 36, then, speaks of one specific, specific person, Christ. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We're presented with one son who is mightier than us, one who is able to set us free, a kinsman redeemer who has the means to redeem all who come to him by faith. Not only that, we have a kinsman redeemer who not only restores us from sin, but preserves us. You will be free indeed. The same adverb was used in Luke 24, 34, when 
I lost my spot. <laughs> when Christ rose from the dead and proclaimed, it was proclaimed to him, the Lord has risen indeed. Really, truly, actually, not a joke, not halfway, and not partial. You will be free indeed. Totally and absolutely free. Eternally free. This is the truth that we cling to as Christians. Our Savior was in the grave three days, yes, but he rose again on the third day. He lives forever, and therefore death has no power over you. Sin has no power over you. The grave has no power over you. The devil and Satan have no power over you. Christ is our victorious king, and he has defeated all of those things. We are set free as sons because Christ has secured us that status as the son. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You who were dead in, the, in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our Redeemer died to the physical elements of this world, the things of this world, and rose again, far above them. By his defeat of death, he has freed us from the bonds of any physical elements. What I mean is that if we are serving Christ, it doesn't matter what type of food you eat, what material you wear, what holidays you celebrate or don't celebrate, or how simple you make your life. I can stand up here in a clown costume, eating a squid, and I would have the same status before God as someone who wore no color and only ate certain foods. The physical elements of this world do not change your status before God. It might seem like that is just a strange point to make. So let me keep going. Colossians 2, 16-23 puts it like this. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Our Christ has risen from the grave into the heavens and has freed us from death. All of the elements of this world will pass away and therefore cannot actually affect our worship of him. They're elemental. They're temporary. 
They perish as they are used. Our Lord is much higher than the passing things of this world. So we must not, as Colossians says, let anyone bring us back into bondage to those things. There was a time when we were enslaved to sin and when we believed that things of this world perhaps could affect the way we got to God. Roman Catholicism does this all the time. It's it's, it's by the things you do and the, the matters you partake in or the food you eat or you don't eat that would bring you closer in a relationship to God. People would do cruel things to their bodies to try to get to God. We're free. We're not in bondage to the things of this world. Those things may have an appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, but we are free in Christ, brothers and sisters. Those things do not affect our relationship with God. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from sin, free from death. My final point then, abide. Abiding in Christ's word. Christ's claim in verse 31, is simple. It's not enough that you believe some of what I say. You must continue to believe what I'm saying. Or as A.T. Robertson puts it, your future loyalty to my teaching will prove the reality of your present profession. We have seen many people in this church come, come come through the doors of this church and later, later walk away. Walk away from the truth. The profession would seem so sincere at one point, but they didn't abide in Christ's word. And so their slavery to sin prevailed, and they went back to their previous life of debauchery. We're told in verse 30 of this chapter, we didn't read it, but verse 30 contextually, we're told that many believed in Christ. And it is upon their belief that Christ exhorts them that true belief abides. You see, in classic Johannian fashion, this verse is music. It, it, in the way that John writes in this verse, it's, 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 it's his style throughout the scriptures that when he gives an exhortation or a command concerning coming to Christ, it's, we use the word monergistic. It's, it's, it's thoroughly based upon God's work and not man's. John has an eye that is focused toward the redeeming work of Christ and not how man is. And so even this verse, when we're told, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. Well, how does one abide in Christ's word? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It is the same Holy Spirit that rose our Savior from the dead, that regenerates us who are saved by the Son. And if the Son sets you free, you will abide in his word the Son has not set you free, then come unto him today. He's a wonderful and a merciful Savior, a faithful kinsman who will not allow his brothers to perish. And we, when we abide in Christ's word, we know the truth, and the truth sets us free. It's constant comfort and assurance to Christians. As we abide in Christ's word as Christians, we are constantly reminded of the precious promises that he has made to us. We were set free when we were redeemed, yes. And as we continue to abide, we're constantly reminded of the promises of which Christ has bestowed upon his people. 
When sin would rear its sharp fangs, then Christ's word speaks with victory. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. When those wicked dogs come and try to enslave us to the ways of this world, the triumphant sound of the scriptures proclaim, we are the circumcision who work not, or worship not, oh, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Can I say that one more time? We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and put absolutely no confidence in the flesh. And if the fear of death, if the fear of death would ever come near to one of God's redeemed sons, our great Redeemer speaks forth. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Christ, it is it's amazing that we are able to come to you. That we are bought by your blood. We are made children and heirs of the kingdom and that nothing can change that status. That we have been redeemed by your precious blood. That you have taken the debt we owe Hold us out of that slavery we're in. Oh, Father, would you help us to never again yoke ourselves in bondage, to live as free men, to worship as free men. So many, so many in this world want to preach another truth, want to pull away from us the freedom we have to live in Christ and the freedom that we have to worship you. Let that not happen. May we as Christian soldiers go forth triumphantly with the gospel of Christ that speaks of one Savior who has finished everything, that we may live and worship you in love. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I would encourage us all then as he comes forward to, to bless the elements of communion. Take communion as a free man. Take communion as a free woman. Worship your Lord as we sing with joy and with jubilee. We are free. Indeed. <laughs> so yes, as, as we partake in communion and, and just take joy in that, the, the power of Christ's blood and, and, and what he purchased as our kinsman redeemer, we've been hitting on these elements of Christ's blood, the virtues of Christ's blood, and we're on the fourth one, if you've been not tracking along, Christ's blood being that reconciling blood, uh, being that life-giving blood. And last week we talked about the cleansing blood of Christ. And today I want to highlight uh, how Christ's blood is, is a softening blood. It is a softening blood that there's no heart that is too hard for Christ's blood not to soften. Uh, the power of his blood can and does soften what seems to be unyielding and seems to be uh, so contrary to the things of God. Um, but once, once immersed in, in the power of Christ's blood, uh, even the hardest of hearts become so tender. And remember the, the Philippian jailer. Remember what he said to, to Paul and Silas. He said, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? Uh, it was a softened heart. 
prepared to, to hear the, the glorious gospel. Right? His heart was, was like melted wax, prepared and ready for the, the signet of the king. And so as the Spirit has, has sealed that signet upon your heart, let's just partake in communion in remembrance of, of what he has done. Let's pray. Heavenly gracious Father, we thank you for, for the word that was exhorted today. We thank you that we're able to, to, to come to you and singing uh, praises to you and song and worship. We thank you for all the blessings that, that has been purchased by your son. Father, I pray that you, you bless these elements for communion, that we partake of them in a, in a holy use, that we partake in them in such a manner that, that, that we look to eternity, that we look to the, the promise that awaits of that great marriage supper of the Lamb that is so imminent, that is so true. Father, bless this time as we partake in one bread. Bless this time that, that we get to enjoy in the ordinance that your son has left us. Father, I pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.